At TQ, we aim to inspire trust through providing individuals with the tools needed to test and prove who they are in real time. In today's episode, Lorraine Charles, co-founder of Namal Remote Work for Refugees, talks about how her business came to be and why she is passionate about youth empowerment. Could you just start by introducing yourself and say a little bit about what you do? Um, and I'm a researcher um, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of NATMAL. I started to do more research on remote work for refugees to understand whether this can be viable, whether refugees would be trained with the skills to actually do this work. You know, so this is where a sort of a, a much larger analysis and sort of observations and, and introspection of the refugee space happened and at that time I sort of looked at Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey sort of places um, you know as, as sort of the, the case studies I was looking at and um, again started to talk about the idea of remote work and I wrote the, the, my first article just a, an art piece for the World Economic Forum at the end of 2017 because the report came out in the middle of 2017 about how remote work can be something viable for refugees. And at the time, of course, you know, I spoke to lots of donors, lots of other organizations, and no one really believed or believed that this could be viable, that this is possible. And, you know, but I didn't give up. I sort of kept on speaking to more people. And I sort of became, I sort of was discovered by the remote work community. These are community companies who were already working remotely before COVID. So they understood that this is completely possible because they were doing it. This was, this was their existence. They were already co-located. And I began speaking to them, speaking at their conferences, speaking about, you know, yes, what you're doing is great. It, it, you know, it gives you all location independence, but remote work can have a much larger economic impact on people who don't have the options where they live. Yeah. And, and you know, and around that time, I sort of met my co-founder and we sort of decided to sort of form NAMO. Initially, we, you know, as I guess all startups sort of ideate and sort of figure out what, you know, what the best niche um, for your work would be. What are the sort of soft skills that people need? And again, as COVID has shown us, these are the skills which are the hardest to learn, hardest to teach, hardest to acquire. Mm-hmm. But in a way, the most important skills. So that's what we focus on. We focus on the human skills for remote employment. So how can you, you know, how, how can you communicate with, with remote teams and also locate the teams? Um, how, you know, how can you organize your day? How can you manage yourself? And again, this is this is particularly important for us because if we consider that a lot of refugees come from places with very traditional education backgrounds where the education systems didn't think, didn't teach things like critical thinking, autonomy, growth mindset, even Western education systems struggle with these. You know, this is why the World Economic Forum and the OECD talk about the 21st century skills, because these, because these skills aren't even taught very well in more Western education systems. So this is what, this is what we started focusing on. Yeah, and then, so, this, so that's really what we do. We, so we sort of work with partners. We do the human skills. Our technical partners do, do, do the technical skills. And to the learner, they have this integrated curriculum where they have both technical and human skills. And then we try to link them up to remote employment after the training. So what made you want to get into this line of work? How did you start doing this? Um, as I said, now I was born out of my research and sort of understanding the gaps. But I guess much further back when I was in my 20s, I was a volunteer at the Refugee Council in London and recognised that I, you know, I love the work. It was really exciting. And I sort of, I knew I wanted to do that, but I didn't know how. And I guess opportunity opening came when the Arab Spring first happened. And, um, and, I, and I was working at university and I was asked to write an article about 
the Arab Spring and women. And I was, and my colleague said, choose any country. And I chose Syria because I've been to Syria and I love Syria. But at that time, none of the other right contributors wanted to write about Syria because Syria was the one which they didn't expect anything to happen with. But I loved Syria and I thought, okay, I, you know, I found it fascinating. I wanted to write about it. And I sort of wrote, you know, a few academic journals and a book chapter. And of course, that's the one that really, you know, that really <laughs> became, became problematic. So, you know, so from that, I sort of started working, um, looking at education for Syrian refugees in the, in, the, in the Middle East and looking at how the private sector can become engaged. And that sort of, you know, and, and that interest led me to the interest in the livelihoods. And then that sort of became that, and that's how I ended up where I have ended up. But I guess it's sort of the trajectory happened, looking at my research and really, and really wanting to understand the gaps and how these gaps can be, you know, how we can address these gaps. Mm-hmm. So why do you feel that youth empowerment is important? So if we look at youth in a much broader scale, a lot of, a lot of the learners that we, we work with, of course, are post-secondary and, and, and often they often have undergraduate degrees and they sort of want to change the tech sectors or sort of want to, want to expand their skills in the tech sector. But one thing which I always talk about, and, and perhaps it you know, it's not directly related, but I'll come to how it how it's related. The pipeline of people coming through the system. So the people that, that that we're getting don't have really, you know, don't have really good technical skills. And if they do, the skills are not because of the system, but despite the system. So if we can figure out how to address the pipeline, the K to twelve education system needs to be, you know, needs to also teach digital skills because these are the jobs of the future. And unless we sort of begin thinking beyond the learners who are coming to us for the training for employment, unless we start looking at what are, how, you know, how, who are the ones who are going to come to us in five years, in 10 years, we have to make sure the digital skills are taught, you know, for kids. And then five years later, 10 years later, we have kids who are ready and equipped and can hit the ground running with the training that's specialized to help them get employment. And one thing I want to say is, again, sometimes the, the notion of youth, often people that have programs that focus on youth only focus up to 29. But often for women, this actually disadvantages women because in a lot of traditional societies, that's women's childbearing age between sort of 21 and 29. So if you cap the age of 29, you, you miss out all these women. And it's only women who are older past 29 whose children are older whose children are now at school are more independent you know only past that age can some of them do some of them have them you know have the bandwidth to actually engage in the programs so I find often when we are very strict about the definition of youth we miss out a lot of women and that often happens a lot of programs that focus strictly on this age group they tend to have more men and they wonder why well a lot of women are sort of busy doing other things at that time so we I think we have to really be cautious about how we consider youth so is this providing remote work something you've always been interested in? I mean, I've worked remotely often in one sense or the other. When, when I was talking about, when I worked with um, doing these academic articles on, on Syria, my, my co-author was living in Venezuela at the time and I was living in Abu Dhabi. So, okay, we weren't working, but we were collaborating virtually using Dropbox and saying, okay, check, you know, managing our time differences so our versions wouldn't clash. So I recognized that it was completely possible, completely viable to work across continents. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was only when I started to, you know, started to understand the employment challenges that refugees faced in host communities in the Middle East, did I sort of put the two together? Because 
at that time when I was working for the organization, mm-hmm. you know, called the Global Business Coalition for Education, I was living in the UAE, but the organization was based in London and New York. So my colleagues that I worked with were in New York. So I was working remotely. You know, we, we managed our time, you know, and since then, a lot of the work and the projects I have done have been with companies that don't have offices in my city in where I live so the idea of remote and you know I'm not a techie you know I don't work in tech but you know it just goes to show that remote work is completely viable for a lot of people we just what's important is the the organization to be open to it which definitely until COVID hadn't been the case but I feel now you know I always say that COVID has turned up into a tech company because you have to embrace it or else there's no way you can survive so what is it that you actually do for the for the people that come to your company for help people don't directly come to us well that's not the way we operate we, we work we work with partners so as i say when we work with partners we combine our curricula as i said earlier so we do the human skills mm-hmm. they do the technical skills and you know and, and the learners have the holistic program and at the end of the training we try to get everyone an internship as much as possible mm-hmm. or some sort of experiential learning and during the experiential learning they have a, a, an individual mentor and at the end you know our kpi is employment are you employed do you have dignified employment and while i recognize the gig, gig working platform work is something that a lot of people find you know it's perhaps more obvious to some people it's not often the type of work that, you know, that we promote. Yes, of course, we would never say to someone, don't do it, but we're, but we're promoting sort of more long-term employment, sort of more, I don't want to say decent employment because of, often these gig platforms are raced to the bottom and really want, and really want our learners to be in long-term jobs where they can grow and actually, de- you know, actually develop, where they can have professional development. Yeah. So is that what people benefit from? Do you, you give them the, the foundation to go and get long-term employment yeah and it's not just education it's networks if we think about how we all find jobs it's often not oh I found a job um, online or I found a job on a job site it's often ah someone is recommending you and those networks are invaluable you know are invaluable and and, and that's why you know certain universities and institutions Mm -hmm. are perhaps more successful than others because they have the network that you know that provides the alumni with access to people who can support them through employment. So we're sort of trying to create that network to help them, you know, help them find work. This is sort of, you know, this remote work network, which already exists. So if people want to start to help, what would you advise them to do? Where would, where would you advise people to start? So it depends. If you're an employer, mm-hmm. be open. You know, if you're an employer in an office, you're, you're the fax machine you know you need to be you know you need to be thinking much more globally um you know that you know there's a whole narrative around diversity inclusion and diversity inclusion doesn't just mean someone who looks different from down the street real cognitive diversity is someone from a completely different cultural background from a completely different culture country and that's and that's what helps business it makes businesses you know more profitable Mm -hmm. so if you're an employer you know think much more globally hire refugees contact us we have lots of fantastic talent if you're you know also if you're if you're you're an employer particularly an employer from a you know from a largish company we have a mentorship program you know and this sort of can help with your csr policy um through your csr budget we can create you know you can become part of our our mentorship program where where your employees get to mentor talent this is a really nice way for the for the companies 
to see what our talent is like, you know, in a, in a, in a non-committal way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can hire our talent, you can be, become a mentor. You know, if, if, if you're just a sort of person not linked to a company, I mean, contact us. We're always looking for, we always need volunteers. We, we, we particularly like university students. We have a lot of volunteer opportunities for university students in our workshop programs. So we have the, the lead trainer, but, but we have university students who are the facilitators. So you, you're part of the, you know, you're part of the workshop. So not only do you, are you helping us, hopefully you're learning as well, learning the skills along with the refugee worker, refugee learners, but you're also supporting the work that we do. So you're supporting the trainer in, in these virtual workshops. Um, so we have lots of opportunities for that because we have, you know, as our programs grow, we have more and more workshops happening. And we love university students because it gives you an opportunity to sort of meet other people. It yeah. also gives you an opportunity to sort of to be exposed to this space if you're interested in this space, you know. And and, and I quite like working with with university students. They have lots of great ideas to help, that can help contribute to the work that we're doing. And yeah, I mean, we're not a nonprofit. We're a social enterprise because we don't forever want to depend on grants. But you know, but of course, we you know we will soon hopefully have a non uh, a nonprofit arm. So uh, you know, so any donations support the work that we do it supports the programs that we run it supports us helping the learners to find jobs it just supports the whole structure which we're creating okay thank you so much for that that was really it was really nice to hear about all the work that you do it's very good like good solid work thank Um, you that is all the questions i have do you have any questions um no i mean um I mean, I guess I would like to say to the audience, whoever's out there, um, you know, it's really important for us to change the narrative of what it means to be a refugee. Refugees are educated. They have skills. They, you know, they have skills which, which are needed. And, and, and having this diversity of perspective for any organization is really helpful. We hire refugees within our organizations, people, from, people with, 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 with a forced displacement background. And it really has contributed to make us a much stronger organization. And you know, and 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 the companies that I work with, that I speak to, that have hired, they all say the same thing. It really does make a difference. Every little difference helps. Okay. TQ is a community of trusted experts who continuously test their skills and knowledge. The My TQ app allows you to build your portable, irrefutable professional reputation. My TQ users can assess their skills against the ever-growing traceable knowledge. To reach expert level, you can contribute as a co-creator on the My TQ app and help others grow their skills and knowledge. Find out more on TQ.com.